0: Today, I welcome Kirk LaPointe, the publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. Kirk has an extraordinary resume in media. After completing a degree in journalism from Ryerson University, Kirk began his career in 1980 at the Canadian Press as a general assignment reporter. Mr. LaPointe has spent time as the Canadian editor at Billboard magazine, held the title of senior vice president for news for CTV, and helped prototype a national newspaper now known as the National Post. You may also recognize Kurt Lapointe's name from the 2014 mayoral election, where he came in second, receiving just over 40% of the total votes. Today, in addition to running business in Vancouver, Kirk is frequently a public speaker on media, business, and political issues, one of the reasons why you're here today. (laughs) He also teaches vitally important courses on ethics and leadership as an adjunct professor in journalism at UBC. In today's conversation, we'll be exploring the shifting political landscape here in Vancouver, Victoria, and Ottawa. And we'll explore how this may affect business activity in Vancouver. And finally, we're gonna discuss the massive disruption in media that Kirk has seen over the last 40 years. So thank you for being on the show today. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, let's go straight into this uh, new political or shifting landscape that we're seeing. Mm. Uh, First of all, we're gonna start off with uh, Vancouver. Vancouver, city of Vancouver has kicked out its old mayor very recently and brought in a new ABC majority with Ken Sim. We also are seeing here in B.C. a transition, and probably by the time we go to publish, um, this will have already taken place, where we're seeing uh, David Eby, Attorney General, take over from John Horgan as Premier of Canada. And nationally, there's also a good chance that by the next election in 2025, that Justin Trudeau may be replaced by... Christia Freeland, someone else from the Liberal Party, or perhaps perhaps Pierre Pierre Polyev, one of our former guests. So let me start with the first open-ended question, which is, which of these three levels of government do you think is affecting and impacting businesses in Vancouver the most today? You know, I think
1: in an earlier day, I would have said uh, the federal possibilities are the largest because of course, it's the largest amount of money to spend. Uh, But I came to understand that a municipal government has far more of an impact on the tone, the environment, uh, the competitiveness, the lack of thereof um, for businesses in in any kind of municipality, of course. Um, It's not just things like property taxes or fees and levies, those kinds of things. It's uh, the safety of the street. It's uh, the, the, the transit options that you have as a community. It's parking. It's uh, and and it's and it's also just the tone of the community, whether it's upbeat or not. So, you know, I and I know that the business community here has been quite aggrieved over the last number of years mm-hmm. with the municipal government. It doesn't feel like it's been listened to. In a lot of ways, it feels like it's been just largely a, a large ATM upon which to draw. And so, yeah, I, I think that uh, businesses are have have probably the greatest impact. Um, at a municipal level.
0: Okay. Well, that's a good segue into the, the discussion around municipal politics in the city of Vancouver. That's where most of our listeners and viewers uh, come from and are familiar with. Um, Ken Sim has delivered a unprecedented you know, yeah. landslide victory. I think it surprised and him too. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, he's done very well. And Ken is a former guest on Coastal Front. and and many rephrase his new government that's just come in its place as a, almost like a super majority. So mm-hmm. the first question I have is with a full control over the park board, the school board, city council, and I know you cover this topic a lot, Kirk, um, is there any reasons why Mayor Sim won't be able to fulfill on his campaign promises? That's a very good question because I think a lot of his campaign promises were a little
1: outside of a municipal jurisdiction. Uh, and I think that that is um, what a lot of municipal governments have been doing in the last generation, is that they see that they have large problems in their midst and they'd like to do what they can. But uh, there's a ceiling. And, and I think in Ken's case, and I know him quite well, he succeeded me as the NPA candidate in 2018 when I decided not to run again. Uh, and he went on to form the ABC party. Um, I think that his promises are, generally speaking, grounded in what a municipality does. But I've noticed right away that he's been reaching out to provincial and federal governments in ways that his predecessor wasn't quite doing for specific issues. And I think that that's what you'll see. I think you'll see that that he will understand that there's a lane that he can drive and he doesn't want to get out of it. Um, it's, it's nice to offer aspirations to people. And that's what Vancouver has done, I think, over the last generation on things like climate change and and you know blocking pipelines and things like that but it's not a city's business a city's yeah. business is still to make sure the garbage is picked up, the streets are clean, the sewers work uh, the, you know that taxes are fair-minded and that in a lot of ways um, you you stick to your knitting that way and you depend and you lobby, you argue for the things that higher levels of government can do. I've been very redeemed to see that the incoming premier, David Eby, has basically said, "I'm going to start taking care. We're going to lead the charge on the downtown east side, because I know that if the city tried to do that, it would just run up against the fact that it doesn't have jurisdiction over things like health. Um, right? Doesn't have doesn't have the housing jurisdiction. It doesn't have taxation possibilities. Any number of things that could help that area." Um, revive itself, treat and deal with the people with dignity in the in the community, make them better, give them a greater sense of hope, Yeah, uh, those are things that only senior levels of government can do. So I like that for the time being it looks like these two new leaders are looking very much at uh, what is their role and not a role for another level of government. And yeah. It seemed like for a time in In Vancouver that the municipal government wanted to create Middle East peace and uh, solve climate change on its own yeah not possible a city has never in history done big things on its own it's always depended on other partners
0: yeah okay well said Um, when you talk to local businesses because you're talking to business owners all the time as the editor-in-chief and publisher for business in Vancouver what are you? What would you? How would you summarize what those businesses are hopeful to see from this new Ken Sim, ABC majority that they hadn't seen from the last mayor and council? Yeah,
1: swifter, uh, swifter approval. Okay. Or swifter denial of their ideas. Right. Either way. Yeah. They just want decisions made. Right. Um, Good know, point. It's it's a a very difficult climate, uh, as it is. I mean, we've got supply chain issues, labor shortages, inflation, higher interest rates for borrowing for all of them. Uh, I would say still a rather uncompetitive tax regime in the province of British Columbia. So those factors all combined, really uh, the worst thing you can do is compound them by delay or by silence. Yeah. And I think people have felt as in businesses that they brought ideas to city hall, whether it's a development, whether it's a proposal for a business, whether it's some kind of, of initiative and that there is just radio silence there for a very long time. And time is money. Yeah. So I think that's what business is looking for. Uh, It's not looking for um, anything more than what it is entitled to, which is a decision. Yeah. And it's felt that in a lot of ways there's been a lot of dithering over the years.
0: Yeah. Well, that's really well said. I like your idea that it's not necessarily just, you know, obviously everybody goes into uh, an environment like that hoping to get their project or idea approved. But just getting us an absolute answer is even more critical. Sure. So you can at you least know, pivot or just get on yeah. with it. And, yeah.
1: And a lot of his ideas, um, and I think he's got very adventurous ideas on on permitting and business can right now business yeah. licensing yeah. Yeah. and things yeah. like that. I mean, we'll see if, if he can make those marks. Yeah. But they are really adventurous, and I think what they're providing the business community is with a bit of
0: hope. Yeah. That even if he doesn't reach those targets, we're going to move toward move them. in the right direction. Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's maybe pivot to province of B.C. Um, you just commented on your um, uh, on your views of David Eby and his how he's going to address the downtown east side. Uh, uh, on November eighteenth, he's going to be sworn in as the thirty-seventh uh, premier of British Columbia. Will this change in the B.C. NDP leadership from John Horgan, who's been so well liked, um, obviously very different personalities within the two the, the two the felt two individuals. But will this change in leadership? have much impact on the way in which businesses are going to be able to succeed? Yeah, it's,
1: it's still a very much an open question. Uh-huh. I would suggest that uh, probably what David Eby will do is move his party slightly to the left. Uh, I think that he was rather chastened by uh, the challenge of Angelia Pardurai, uh, who who nearly stole the leadership. I mean, stole is probably not the correct word. She nearly beat him at his own game. Yeah. in selling memberships before she was disqualified as a candidate. But clearly what she was getting uh, was, it was what she was channeling was this very much this uh, uh, discomfort inside the NDP and then with those who would like to be in the NDP but don't see it in, in, in faithfully fulfilling a lot of the promises that were made as John Horgan came to power around the environment, uh, around equity, around you know, kind of a social justice theme. And David Eby, of course, has a background in that as a yes, lawyer yeah, yeah, and yes. uh, preceding his time in public office. I think that he is going to have to find a way to do that without alienating business too greatly because one of the masteries, I think, that John Horgan had was that people in the business community thought, well, this is, this is going to be a disaster. This is going to be another Fast berries fiasco absolutely. every yeah. day and he never materialized. And why? Because Horgan moved the party more toward the center reaffirmed Site C, supported LNG development, uh, You know, did a lot of things I think that business saw and then ran the pandemic, uh, even through Bonnie Henry, ran it in such a way that he could rationalize to businesses what he was doing time and time and time again. And he left, of course, really well liked. Yeah. David Eby has to capture, first of all, he has to turn on his charm, he has, yeah. to, he has to find that method because John Horgan was the premier everybody wanted to have a beer with. Yes, that's and right. David Eby has to find that. Yeah. And I, he's still searching for it. And he's also going to have to deal with the fact not only that he have this rearguard issue with uh, Padurai and, and, and her followers, but he's got Kevin Falcon across the way. Yeah. And Falcon is a very, very uh, astute and I think uh, a, a very provocative guy in the legislature. And Eby's is going to have to find a way to marshal his wisdom of having been in cabinet for this time, in order to deal with somebody who, of course, used to be in cabinet and knows the tricks, yeah. knows the playbook. Yeah. And and I think David Eby will have his hands full um, in doing it, especially if he starts moving people, the party toward the left, because that then offers Kevin Falcon the opportunity to move toward that center a bit more. Right. And and that's where the public still is.
0: Would you summarize that as being David's probably biggest challenge then is, is not shifting his party too far left, but enough to be able to win back the hearts and minds of some of those? He has to voters. make sure
1: that, that the generation that is going to experience the worst of the climate change, I mean, you know, I'll be gone. Maybe you won't be gone. Maybe yeah. you're still a young man that kind <laughs> of thing. But but, you know, the but the generation of my children and my grandchildren are gonna be experiencing really serious implications of climate change. They're going to feel that governments of their forebears let them down. Right. And I I think that any politician today understands that, has gotten that message, and that they have to do things in order to do it. Corgan was very good in selling the idea that with every step of progress, there comes compromise. And I think that that is a message that did get lost on a lot of uh, the younger, more impulsive leaders who wanted change now. And I think David Eby's gonna have that as a as a test. How does he manage this over the next four to five years? Yeah. Not to mention the fact that we are as a province probably going into something approaching or maybe fulfilling a recession. Yeah. And the NDP didn't have that. They had good economic times. Yeah. You could argue that the BC Liberals built a pretty good nest for them to be birds. Right. And and now um, David Eby's going to have his own identity in this one yeah. to carve out, and his own leadership style, and he has about what two years or so to do it yeah. before he goes before to face the public. He has,
0: has so. faced the public, yes, mm-hmm. that's right. Um, finishing off with the provincial government, do you have a take on the NDP's decision to not support a 2030 Winter Olympics here in Vancouver? Yeah, well, that one to
1: me. Uh, I, I was skeptical that that was ever gonna get off. Um, largely because the experience of the group in, in having a relationship to the IOC was, was integral. It was integral even in the original bid for 2010, that there were people that, that had connections in the sport community uh, and were able, and, and obviously they had big political backing right from the get go. Um, in this case here, you were dealing with people that were new to it and didn't have that experience. And then the bigger problem was, uh, yeah, the state of public financing. And even the yeah. NDP and the Liberals federally recognized that the public finances are not necessarily gonna be in the best shape in five or 10 years. Yeah, And this is something that requires an indemnification of probably a billion and a half, two billion $2 billion. That's a big ticket item. In the last case, we all got excited about it because we also saw what was going to be built in British Columbia. We were going to build the Canada Line. We were going to fix yeah. the Sea to Sky Highway. We were going to build arenas. We were going to do a lot of things that seemed quite exciting. We were going to basically give the area of Vancouver a facelift. Yeah. In this case here, this is not really a facelift that we're looking for. Yeah. Um, it was going to be it's a really us- good point. using a lot of old facilities that were probably going to have to be fixed. And it, the, the enthusiasm just wasn't there. And I think the province assessed that quite well. And I think it was also let down by the fact that even at this stage, they were getting plans that were not really all that substantially put together. Yeah, and they were being asked to write this gigantic check. Yeah, it is odd um, because the World Cup is coming here, and that's that's a big blank check pretty well too. Yeah, uh, but in that case, there is a more uh, experienced team that is guiding this into the city. Yeah, um, I think that that's what ultimately did it. Is that they just didn't have faith that the leadership of this was going to work it out. And I do understand what First Nations leaders say about a setback on reconciliation, but I I don't think that the province thought that this was part of the overall scope of reconciliation in the province, which is still an important uh, objective, but maybe not
0: through this path. Through this path, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well said. Okay, let's jump to federal politics. Uh, Justin Trudeau has now been the uh, Prime Minister of Canada for just over seven years. The next scheduled federal election uh, is no later than October of 2025. But as we've seen the last couple of um, decades, they happen more frequently than once every four years. Do you anticipate that Justin Trudeau will be our prime minister going into the next election?
1: No, not if it's in 2025. I I, um, I actually thought I was wrong, obviously. I thought that he might try to pull one uh, out of the hat this year. Uh, that with Pierre Poiliev uh, gaining the conservative leadership, that uh, the liberals felt that perhaps their greatest opportunity to make sure that he didn't get off the mat nationally, because he's still relatively unknown nationally, was yeah. only known to, to some of the conservative party. Uh, that that this was their their opening. The economy was still good. We weren't. You know, we yes, we had inflation, but we weren't going into recession yet. He's going to have to now survive. I think a, a year or two. Of rough economic waters, uh, he is aging out as a leader. Mm-hmm. Most governments defeat themselves, as you know, they're they're not defeated, and and so he will be an easier opportunity to defeat in the next election. Yeah, and I believe too that uh, that he understands the nature of succession. Um, his his father didn't all that well, but I think Justin does, and I and I believe that what we'll see uh, before terribly long. Because his numbers, of course, are are not great. His his trust level is well down. Uh, you know, the, he's he's amassed uh, constituencies that now really oppose him that weren't opposing him back in 2015 and 16 and 17. Um, he acted a little churlish during the pandemic in vilifying people who were not prepared to get vaccinated, who weren't prepared to abide the restrictions. Um, Once you begin to do that to your population, you set on fire the ground a little bit. Yeah. And that brush fire can spread. And I think that Pierre Poiliev recognizes what is opportunity, what is opening is here. But I think the liberals also understand that probably to have success in the next election, they'll need a new leader.
0: Yeah. Any guess on who that might be?
1: Well... You can never really tell with Christian Freeland on whether yeah. she's truly interested in the job or whether she's auditioning for something larger. Right. You know, you, you keep hearing her name attached to NATO, you keep hearing her name attached to the UN, you keep hearing her name attached to other non-governmental organizations just in order to fulfill some kind of other mission. She's clearly the front-runner, but there are others in that cabinet and there are others outside of it, of it. I, I'm not sure that uh, you know Mark Carney. I mean, I may be absolutely dead wrong in this one. I'm not sure that Mark Carney is the kind of leader that they're looking for. Yeah. Um, I, and and there is no young, aggressive, um, personable, charismatic person in their midst mm-hmm. as a cabinet. So, um, yeah, at the moment, yeah. I, I bet on yeah. Christian Freeland. Yeah, but not a lot of money on it. Yeah, okay, fair enough.
0: I know transparency in government is something that's quite important to you. It's definitely important to me. Mm-hmm. What is your, uh, how would you grade this current federal government on their, on their transparency? Oh, it's been pretty terrible. <laughs> There's no question. Uh, uh, I've never seen
1: any government improve the state of transparency uh, with a measurable way. Um, but this government here has, time and time again, through things like the Access to Information Act, uh, through its uh, approach that it takes to uh, communications, uh, to media relations, uh, to um, discussions with uh, interested parties, uh, through cooperation with other political parties, uh, been been really profoundly lacking in transparency. Uh, that being said, Andrew, I've never seen an opposition leader who crows about, uh, you know, the fact that we will be fixing the issue with transparency in government fulfill that. I mean, everyone talks a wonderful game in opposition, and then they get in there, and the public service says there are good, solid reasons why we shouldn't be telling the public things. There's a lot of scary things that governments have to do behind the curtain, and they keep it behind the curtain. But this has not been a government that, in my view, has passed the test, nor has the Oregon government, nor has the municipal government here.
0: Do you do you believe that statement yourself as a as a as a journalist or running journalistic businesses that that government should hold back on the information it discloses to its citizens? You know, um, I mean, barring some very extreme, you know, the, security the, the, issues, but
1: the, there are there are uh, categories of records that ought to be withheld for national security purposes, for privacy purposes as well. Yeah, and I understand that. But um, I've been an advocate around access to information for more than thirty years now, yeah. and uh, and I've never seen it weaker than it is now. Really, and this ought to be a time when, in fact, it ought to be stronger. Yeah, the public is also far more sophisticated. Um, there are so many more tools for the public to do some of its own research, some of its own uh, uh, piece of this, that um, to level with them, I don't think is going to be catastrophic for a government. But I. I do wonder whether governments feel like they're too far gone down this road, that to admit mistakes now would crush them. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to kind of concede vulnerability or folly, uh, or mistake, um, would would be then uh, the end game for right. their political careers. I probably understand that now. I don't like it, and I don't think it's necessarily going to change. And I yeah. and believe me, I've got Kevin Falcon on record saying he'll he'll clean it up. And I've said to him, "I'll rerun that tape uh, right. if you don't." But um, but I'm not betting on that. And yeah. I think that that um, the public service uh, spends a lot more time and a lot more money uh, protecting, you know, protecting information yeah. than it does divulging it. And I happen to know that there are a lot of really important things that we don't know that yeah. governments do, that do it do you know sometimes uh, betray fault. Um, But I have told many politicians, you know, do you not think that in this day and age now, that when the Pope even is not pretending to be infallible, that a municipal or provincial or federal politician could also say, I regularly have, I regularly make mistakes. Um, I have decisions to make sometimes that's a close call one way or the other. And I sometimes choose the wrong side on an issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm prepared to stand before you and tell you that I make mistakes. You know, that's why they put erasers on pencils. Yeah, <laughs> um, Everyone makes them. But no, no, they keep basically spinning and, and pushing us back and telling us, no, it's not no. wrong. No, it is the right path. No, I did not make a mistake. And I guess I ask, who do you think you're fooling? Yeah. I, you're not fooling anybody any longer. And all it does is it breeds cynicism creates more dysfunctionality in the relationship that we have as citizens with our with our elected officials in a lot of cases it causes us to come up you know get our emotions out sideways through social media uh, which then discourages people mm-hmm. from seeking public office yeah sure so what kind of a bizarre virtuous mess is this you know yeah so
0: yeah well this is a good segue into i'm actually going to jump we'll talk about business vancouver at the end i want to jump into the our, our what was going to be our last conversation which is uh, going from a world of uh, when you started in journalism of newsprint and radio and a little bit of television to now podcasts like this and, mm-hmm. and, and Twitter. Yeah. Um, and you've just highlighted how government has, you know, lost the, the citizens have lost trust in their government through a lack of transparency. In part. Yeah. In part. Um, but that's also happened at the at the media level, too. No if, yeah. I mean, if you look at the, the, the sort of the, the decline in trust in the last few years by large organizations like CNN and Fox News, mm-hmm. who seem to have almost helped polarize our society. Yep. <clears throat> and I often say to my own clients as a financial advisor to remember that these, these organizations, whether it's uh, BNN or CNBC, they're not in the business of providing sound financial advice. They're in the business of, of selling advertising, and the way they do that is by selling fear and greed. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if they can if they can get viewers to listen because there's lots of fear today and lots of greed tomorrow Then they tune in and yeah. if they tune in they get more advertising dollars. Yeah, yeah, um, I mean that's yeah and, and whether it's a business related or it's so I, But then you've got you know more what I see I mean, I was a very early subscriber in my pro- Professional career as I told you yesterday uh, To business in Vancouver I used to get the paper and I'd read this thing from front to back and I really enjoyed it I felt like it was like this grassroots, on the ground, you know, sort of local journalism around the business community in Vancouver. It was really, and I still enjoy reading your publications, by the way, Um, but maybe can you speak to your view on the lack of trust that's happened in the media uh, world? It's largely self-inflicted. It has a lot to
1: do, as you put it, with the polarization and uh, of our discourse and the feeding of it. most media you know, are, are a, a kind of a positioning statement in the market. You know, you choose your organization to be uh, a little liberal or a little conservative because you sense, you sense that the, there's a market, there's an appetite for that kind of information. So your story choices are very different. Um, you may still create uh, with objective methods because we at UBC we say there is no such thing as objectivity there is the however an objective method to gather your information but even just the choice of your stories is not in, in effect a bit of a statement right so what these news organizations do as part of their positioning statements they choose particular types of stories and they leave others alone yeah and certain days as you know you can watch if you're watching Fox and CNN you can go back and forth and they're they're different worlds yeah, i mean it's amazing something that is Shrieking howling on one isn't even being attended to by the other. Yeah, and you know, it, it's crazy making. Yeah, because uh, you'd like to have um, Their take and their take on the same thing huh. because somewhere the truth would be in between. Yeah uh, So so I say, you know, you have to be careful about uh, Generalizing about the media. I, I, I don't think that the media Could agree on whether the Sun rises in the east or the west every morning. But um, what you have to be now, I think, is a very good media consumer. The Times call for you, especially given the the way that the internet has amplified the world and brought us to anywhere we wish to go in it, and any media we wish to choose within it, and some cases, people that purport to be media that aren't even really media but are propagandists. Right. Uh, you, it's it's incumbent on you as a citizen to select intelligently, to curate, to stay away from a lot of other things, at least in the sense of don't, don't basically uh, listen to them. But I, I will say this, I, I tell my students this, you have to watch what other sides are doing. It's not like you can drown out. If you don't like Fox News, you know, I say to them, too bad. You've got to watch a little Fox News. It's intelligence for you. Yeah. You need to know what what is in that discourse on that part of it. And if you don't like CNN, you might be willing to throw things at the TV set. You've got to watch. You've got to pay attention to some of the things it's doing. Mm -hmm. If you don't like the local newspaper, if you don't like, if you don't like the local radio station, if the local television newscast drives you crazy, you still need to understand it because it is speaking to a lot of people who are right around you. And you need to understand a little bit about what's bouncing off them, what might be affecting them. And so I well, think that's a good point. I think it calls yeah. for people now to be better information consumers than ever because of the selection that sure. you got out there. And the fact that in some cases, it has pushed itself more and more away from a kind of third option, a kind of a commonsensical middle ground yeah. into these positioning statements that are harder right, harder left. Uh, than ever before, and and you know we're talking past each other in a lot of cases on these things.
0: So I like your description. say that's actually really good advice for the listener. But if you think about it from the lens of a media company that wants to be that commonsensical,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, both sides of the story type of hard type. to stay that course. I can tell you. Is it? Oh yeah, it's very I mean, hard to stay yeah. that course. Is because you, you're you're just a generalist and you're not getting anybody to buy into your into your messaging or well, what was the problem there. As a business publication,
1: there's a certain orthodoxy that you have. I mean, we're not anti-capitalism. You know, we're, we <laughs> right. we we believe in a market economy. Uh, yeah. Those kinds of things. However, you know, we we do um, we do want to take a look at some of the deficiencies that arise when you have um, some of the uh, some of the extremes of of, of the economy. Uh, that said, you know, we're, we're not going to be attacking it in the way that a publication to the left, the hard left to center would be. I um, see. So, so you know, we're, we're still in a sandbox that is um, rather finite. Um, and we try to, within that, be fair-minded. And I think that you know, our, our reporters um, look, look at it as not so much both sides of the story, but as many sides, you know, all sides of the story. Because it's usually well more than two or three, and um, they spend good time researching their material. Uh, Our reporters have a lot of experience, so they don't get pulled into some of the rookie mistakes that can be made. And heaven knows, you know, I I made them many times. Uh, But I think that you, um, what you get with that is uh, what we try strive for anyway, is uh, is a fairness about our approach and the fact that people are not getting material that is uh, rather colored by opinion. Uh, There's a place for commentary in our pages, but with news reporting we we try to be as straightforward as we can be, Mm -hmm. as as equitable as we can be in Mm -hmm. what we're
0: doing. So when you look at larger organizations than yours, say for example, here in Canada, say like the CBC, Mm -hmm. I feel like they've lost a lot of uh, credibility amongst many Canadians. Um, what would, if you were on the board of the CBC, what advice would you have for yeah. how to move them back into a direction where they feel like people can start to trust them again? Yeah, we, do we have a couple of hours? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was the ombudsman for
1: the CBC. For okay, a, I used to handle all the public complaints that came in about oh, really? losing information. Okay, so
0: you, this, I didn't know that, so, so yeah, a, I, was, I, I was touched there. on really uh, that. Oh yeah,
1: no, no, it was a great job. Uh, great in a certain sense, so that you really got an understanding of what the public thought about the CBC in a lot yeah. of cases. Um, I will say that CBC, even when I ran CTV News, uh, CBC was considered to be still the gold standard in Canada because it resourced its journalism the best. Uh, It went to places that others couldn't afford to go. It used its financial advantage as a crown corporation uh, in order to do that. Um, It's fallen on some very difficult times. And I think, uh, and I I lament that because I think um, a public-minded broadcaster conserve all elements of the population really well if it sees its role in doing that. And I think where the CBC has gone wrong, and, and I think a lot of people would share the view, is that it, uh, it chose to somehow uh, find a different lens uh, that, was, um, that wasn't necessarily going to be widespread enough to address all of Canadians' concerns in all of the regions of the country. Mm-hmm. and uh, and it can feel very much like it's trapped in that bubble. Uh, and it's not alone in that. A lot of Toronto-based media, Ottawa-based media have the same issues. Um, but but I think in the case of the CBC, we expect more from it. And obviously Canadians have decided with their channel changers that it's not the choice. It's not the choice for news anymore. It's 3rd yeah. third, third-ranked newscast in the country when it used to be the first ranked. Uh, is it for, really? For very What long is first time. and second? Uh, CTV has been long for about 25 years, has been the number one newscast in the country. Uh, Global has gone from zero to be the number two. Wow. And, and uh, CBC has, has gone from one down to two down to three. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think that that is a bit of a statement about how well Canadians feel it does. Having said that, Andrew, CBC Radio. Is often number one in the market. People have a different trust relationship to CBC Radio, a dependence on it, um, a sense that it's in its community, a sense that it understands it a little bit better. Right. And and so it it's very faithful to CBC Radio, yeah. not so to TV. And huh. some of that just has to do with the fact that nobody can understand what the mandate is. Right. Is it to just do Canadian programming? Well, you know, why are we doing Canadian versions of Family Feud? You know, why was Wheel <laughs> of Fortune on for so long? It, why does it do those types of things? Yeah. And um, yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's lost its way right now. It, it needs, needs to find some other people to help it back.
0: Yeah, okay. We've had uh, billionaires buy uh, large media companies before. Uh, Jeff Bezos with the Washington Post, um, Lorraine Powell Jobs in the Atlantic, mm-hmm. John Henry in the Boston Globe. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk has just uh, purchased Twitter. Um, what's your views on on that acquisition, and and do you think Twitter is going to become something better for society, the same, or worse?
1: You know, I, I think I was among the first three hundred thousand or three hundred fifty thousand Twitter users, right? I when I was at the Vancouver Sun, uh, we they scoffed at me. You know, like why would you why would you spend your time dealing with this hundred and forty character thing? Uh, and I said, no, no, I think I think it's going to be pretty good because all of my American journalist friends were on it and uh, and I could see the occasional politician going on it
0: What did, what year did you go on it? Do you remember? Uh, I have to two, look it up two, uh, Oh my goodness. I think, see well, I think what happened is that it
1: my, my, I launched account stopped an account went back on I think I was like 2007 two thousand six. Wow. okay, so really early on. 2006 yeah. summer back then. Yeah uh, anyway um, but you know, it's a very good instrument of, of information gathering yeah. For journalists, so journalists are on it, and I think journalists are going to stay on it. Politicians are on it. I think they're going to stay on it. Uh, but I think Twitter's grand mistake, and I don't see Elon Musk changing this, is anonymity. Uh, you know, we teach very clearly in journalism that anonymity is is a form of cowardice for the most part, because you're basically providing people when they criticize a free shot. It's like wearing a blindfold and getting yeah. duped. And we always say, you know, if, if you're going to speak out about something, you need a really great reason to conceal your identity. Twitter doesn't demand that of you. Twitter lets yeah. anyone make any kind of account up, say anything, and you never know who it is. Mm-hmm. And it poisons, it absolutely poisons the stream. And uh, other social media have been better
0: than Twitter at doing this. Well, LinkedIn is a great example. I mean, you Link- basically, it's the cleanest of all of them in my mind.
1: Yeah. LinkedIn, you can't even goof around. No. You can't, can't even <laughs> say chatty things on LinkedIn. You're, you'll be ostracized. Yeah. Uh, Facebook's a little bit better uh, than, than Twitter. But Twitter has been, I think, uh, this big pool of yeah. people, some of whom play well, some of them don't. And again, it requires that you curate your list of who you're going to yeah. follow, who you're going to listen to. The algorithm doesn't necessarily help you either. It tends to put a lot of the same voices back in front of you. Yeah. It drives you, you know, a little nuts. I feel like I've only got four people at my network some days. But I do use it. I use it for information gathering. And I think it's going to continue to be powerful that way, even though Mastodon will probably try to you know, challenge it over the years. The mistake that, uh, that Elon Musk seems to be making is that he thinks that the simplest way to monetize it is to simply charge people for their little blue tick, I've got the one of those lovely little blue ticks, and you know, I I may lose it soon because I don't I don't think so far it's worth eight dollars a month to just have that. Um, and what worries me is that somebody who will pretend to be me will get the blue tick on my name. So he's not being very clear on that, although I think he's trying. Uh, so so Twitter to me right now, um, I never understood what Elon Musk wanted to do with it, and I still don't. And, and I need to know that. Yeah, uh, I'll hang out for the time being because I learn more than I get upset yeah. um, when I'm on Twitter. But maybe that won't last much longer.
0: Well, and using your own comments earlier, I mean, as you tell your journalism students, even if you don't like it, you should be engaged so you can see what the rest of the population's. Oh, oh yeah, at. no, I, f- so. I
1: follow people I fundamentally disagree with. I don't, I don't have, yeah.
0: I don't have a problem in doing that. I, I, I think I actually follow more people I disagree with on Twitter than I do actually that I support. Yeah,
1: I. I I, you know, I don't really need the validation hour after hour. I, I get enough of that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, Kirk, let's go. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons I said to you before we started filming of why I started Coastal Front is I feel in, in, our, in our culture here in Canada, we seem to want to help the young budding entrepreneur, help him and her kind of get them up and going and, and excited about people who can, you know, get early on, you know, get some, some the, the steam rolling, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as they reach a certain level of success, we start to vilify these people. Um, I was really happy to have, uh, for example, um, Chip Wilson on a couple of months ago. Um, He was a great community leader, business leader, probably helped uh, launch more female-led businesses than anybody else in Canada. Mm -hmm. Yet he's vilified for a couple of comments he might've said on the media, social media in the past. Uh, Kirk, you obviously write about all sorts of businesses in Vancouver. Um, successful large businesses, small, you know, rising stars. Um, so let me start by asking you some questions around what's happening with business in Vancouver. First of all, I- inflation. Is, is this something that is a common theme that you're hearing from the companies you're talking into today? Is, is inflation a big issue for them?
1: Yeah. Inflation is a symptom of something that they've been talking about for a couple of years with us, which was supply chain problems Okay, and uh, labor shortages. And uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the pandemic compounded it by just simply inflating the cost of doing some basic things. You know, a restaurant had to suddenly sanitize itself and put up plexiglass everywhere and offer masks to people. And, and you know, somewhere someone was going to pay for that. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, so we had this roll of inflation that started and just keeps rolling on and on. Uh, but yeah, it, businesses are quite concerned about that. Um, they became really high, highly concerned once inflation reached the point where the central bank started saying the era of near free money is over and we're going to start jacking up interest rates and now they're quite concerned because they don't see necessarily the end to it we can get some good inflation numbers month by month but really the you know that train has left the station and yeah. getting it back in is going to be quite a problem i think so you're going to end up i think with still some time before businesses get a little bit of their swagger back, yeah. Because uh, I think we'll we'll probably face a recession in the next year. Uh, it won't be necessarily a crushing recession like we've had in the past, but it's going to be enough to essentially slow down what businesses were hoping was a resumption. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of a, you know, can we make twenty twenty two and twenty three like twenty nineteen? Right and. You know that's that's not on. If you recall, though, Andrew, we were we were kind of on the cusp of a recession anyway when we went into the pandemic. Yeah, it was just the quantitative easing and that just
0: helped the splashing of money all over the
1: place that kind of kept us rolling for a couple of years. So now, if
0: we face that, it's almost like putting you know fire starter fuel on a on a small fire. It makes it big and hot. For a moment, and then for a make, while, yeah. and then it makes it way worse afterwards. And then, yeah, and then <clears throat> then you're looking at what kind of damage there is. Uh, no, I think I think that that's probably uh,
1: concern number one. Yeah, uh, in a community like this, mm-hmm. of course, that's an expensive community where it's you know we take a look at our you know our per capita income uh, being in the middle of the pack in the country mm-hmm. in a country that isn't already highly rich. Yeah. Um, people look at that and say, well, Vancouver is just such an outlier, such a problem uh, in order to make a living in such a way that you can live well yeah. in the community. You have to make a lot of money here.
0: So, well, that, that leads into one of my other questions, which is, you know, um, I don't think uh, the uh, a, con- a conversation around um, childcare or affordable housing would not at first make you think, well, that, that can't really impact businesses, but I imagine it probably does. Yeah. Well, businesses, I think, quite credibly
1: have rallied around childcare. Mm-hmm. Time was they didn't. Time was they, they looked at childcare as being some kind of uh, menacing expense. And what they realize now is that it's the single largest determinant of getting women, getting two incomes into the workforce Right. in such a way that it builds prosperity, leads to jobs being created, but not just in businesses being created. Yeah. And it was the single largest impediment to it. So that's great. And, and I think uh, I'm, I'm actually glad to see that the business community has come around on that issue because it wasn't always that terribly enlightened. Um, when it comes to affordable housing, I think the business community asked a pretty reasonable question, which is who's going to pay for it? Yeah. And if we're going to end up with a lot of government paid housing, well, ultimately that circles back to someone somewhere paying the tax in order to fulfill that promise and that commitment. So what are we gonna do there? And I, I worry about the state of our public finances. I know that it's not, it's not vogue right now to worry about deficits and, and debt, uh, but for my children, I do.
0: Well, it's not if your name's uh, Trudeau, that's for sure. Yeah, but. I mean, it, and, and you know,
1: it, uh, governments do very good jobs of handing out money. Uh, they don't do as good a job on saving mm-hmm. and, and being really prudent. Um, and that cuts across all parties, oh, by the way. It's, yeah, not, absolutely. it's not just a liberal yeah. thing. <clears throat> but but I would say that uh, you know the the day is coming very soon, where we're going to have to get a much more serious grip on this, and where we can't just create new social programming without understanding, without at least having a, a very clear take from for the rest of the country about where the money is going to come from, mm-hmm. and and you know I would say the same thing with First Nations uh, with with reconciliation, I don't think Canadians have quite apprehended yet what this is going to look like, and I I'm fully in support of it but I also know it's going to come at a great deal of sharing of power mm-hmm. it's going to mean that a lot of people who have privilege people like me will will have to share it properly partner with it and I think that for businesses I think that they're still you know they they're still about a toe in to the water uh, and and if you want to get both feet in you're going to have to really uh, change attitudes and change change your minds about things um, and I think Canadians don't quite apprehend how significant, how consequential that is in terms of Reconciling our history right to to really fully share uh, Sharing power sharing the instruments of the economy in Mm -hmm. such a way that that they benefit everybody so uh, I you know, I I look at those Spectres along with climate change and I say well, you know We have to be smart now because we we won't have as much of a margin later to make mistakes around things right
0: well said business in vancouver for those people who may not be familiar with your yeah. organization i don't know do you call it a publication still is it a uh, yeah
1: we don't call yeah. it a newspaper yeah um,
0: we <laughs> call it a publication publication
1: and uh, we tend to refer to it now as BIB. okay just because we we have an out-of-market uh, audience so you know, sure
0: See the beauty of going digital is you can go everywhere because it isn't really business
1: in Vancouver; it's yeah. business all over British Columbia, all over yeah. Western Canada. You know, sure, we, and we have broader plans in in the new year to you know, really expand upon what we're doing and bring more material in from sectors like agriculture, energy, uh, mining, yeah. in order to to you know uh, really basically fortify our our report. So we'll get that done. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've been around for thirty. Three years, I guess, yeah. um, and uh, and we you know we, 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 a,
0: a subsidiary of Glacier Media.
1: Yep, yeah. Yep. Uh, Glacier bought it uh, and quite some time ago. Uh, Glacier is is one of those unrecognized companies. Uh, it's the largest Western Canadian media company. We all just so
0: listeners know, what are some of the other brands that people might be familiar with that Glacier um, owns?
1: Well, in the Vancouver area, uh, things like Vancouver is awesome, North Shore News, Richmond News, Burnaby Now. You know, uh, Delta Optimist, uh, you know I could go on.
0: Western Investor, Western Investor,
1: yeah. uh, Victoria Times Colonist, yeah. Castanet in the Okanagan, really gigantic. Yeah, uh, Prince George Citizen, um, it, it, we, properties all over British Columbia. Yeah, and then as you get into Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, properties in smaller communities. Uh, so a lot of community publications there too. Yeah. So yeah, we we are big. You know, we own an environmental service uh, that. Uh, Basically, is larger than Environment Canada's um, wow. for for farmers, and yeah. uh, you know we have a weather service that's starting. We're we're doing a lot of things that people actually don't notice, and we're you know we're we're kind of under the radar, yeah. and and uh, that helps in a lot of ways because yeah. you know you're you you get to do your work without the distraction of being uh, you know being a big target for people. So,
0: right, yeah. yeah. So going back to VI, BIV, mm-hmm. if people want to consume your content, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, immediately
1: it's biv.com, mm-hmm. and uh, people can get a subscription to the paper if you want one delivered every week. Uh, you can get a digital subscription to get that material all the time, uh, getting access to what the printed edition would look like if, yeah. you, if you had it come to your house. Um, we do events. We do about 25, 30 <laughs> events a year on business topics in Vancouver for the most part uh, and we uh, we do podcasting uh, two three times a week um, and and you know we're, we're active we've uh, we put ourselves out there uh, you know, our reporters are on global morning at 640 a.m. Um, and we uh, we have plans for uh, you know a strong uh, association with global over the next little while so yeah we we've got our hands in a lot of things, you
0: know, yeah. A lot of things. yeah good and you, you yourself are also pretty prominent. I mean, you're on Twitter. Oh um, yeah, no, I, yeah. I I
1: mean, it's usually dumb things I'm saying. Or <laughs> if, I, if I'm not, if I'm not promoting my columns, it's usually complaining about the Vancouver Canucks or something. Like that. Yeah, so.
0: <laughs> well, this has been a great conversation today. Kirk Lapointe, publisher and editor in chief at Business in Vancouver, or BIV. Thank you for being on Coastal Front today. Andrew, been a pleasure. Thanks yeah. a lot for your time. Thank you.